First Chronicles chapter 14. If you'll join me there as we continue our study through First Chronicles together. Last time in our study, we saw David as he ultimately came to the throne over the entire nation of Israel, the consolidation really of the nation after a time when they were divided, where for a period of seven years, remember David, when he first came to the throne, was ruling there in Hebron over Judah and Benjamin, but then ultimately recognizing that David was the anointed king once Saul was removed. The remainder of Israel came together, and it tells us that David became king over all of Israel. And David's first desire and his first act, uh, because his first desire and love was the Lord, remember, was to seek to bring God back to the center of the nation. And the way David sought to do that was to bring the ark of God, which had been uh, separated really from the people during the time of Saul's reign. Saul had very little interest in that which was spiritual as a king and a national ruler. And David wanted to change that. He knew the first thing the nation needed more than a great military or a fantastic economy or great new laws. He knew that what the nation needed was God's presence and the glory of God among them, that if God was at the center of the nation, that would make all the difference. So uh, David, remember, as he was certainly doing other things, a assembling an army, all these other kinds of things. What David sought to do was bring the ark of God back into the capital city of Jerusalem. And unfortunately, we saw, though he had the right intention, he went about it the wrong way. And so we saw there in chapter 13, as we left off last time, this unsuccessful attempt of David to do really what was the will of God. David was, was hearing from the Lord. He was in line with the will of God. Unfortunately, the way he and the religious leaders went about this was just uh, outside of God's design. They didn't consult the Lord. We don't really see any reference to them seeking God regarding how to go about it, nor does it seem they consulted the word of God because they didn't honor the, the prescribed manner that the scriptures declared of how the ark was to be transported, and that was that it was to be carried on poles by the Levites one step at a time. It wasn't to be put on a cart and carried uh, or pushed around or driven in any way. And because they disregarded God's way of doing things, they put the ark onto a cart just like the Philistines had done in years past. And as the cart was going along and this great parade and celebration was happening and all this enthusiasm, the cart stumbled. And it tells us that Uzzah put out his hand to stabilize the cart, thinking he was doing something helpful. And again, though in good intention, it was irreverent towards God. It violated Numbers chapter 4, which said they were not to touch the ark of God, and the picture there, of course, was the ark was symbolic of God's presence, of his awesomeness and his holiness. It was symbolic of God's glory, uh, and God doesn't want human beings putting their fingers on his glory or, or thinking that we can sort of just in a cavalier way just rush into his presence. And so uh, Uzzah was struck dead by God, and David was quite uh, upset by this and therefore became, it said, angry and then fearful, and then became incredibly discouraged and just pushed off the ark for a few months into the house of a man named Obed-Edom, where the ark then remained for the next three months. Now, as we come into chapter 15, which we'll get to this evening, we'll see David will make a second attempt and bring the ark 
back in successfully and will go about things the right way. But chapter 14, we get this sort of little parenthetical section in between these two events of the first and second attempt to bring the ark up. It tells us chapter 14, just a little more about the exaltation of David as the rightful king in Israel now. It says chapter 14, verse 1, that Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters to to build him a house. So Hiram, one of the neighboring kings, uh, recognizing that the hand of the Lord was upon David. Uh, it doesn't say that these foreign leaders did anything like this for Saul, but it seems that it was just very evident to the onlooker that David was indeed the God-ordained individual who should be doing what he was, which was ruling and leading the people at this time. And so because of that, uh, these other foreign leaders seeking to kind of want to acknowledge that they saw the hand of the Lord upon David's life, uh, did things to bless him, to help and to assist him in the works that he was doing. It says Hiram sent down not only supplies, but workers to come and, and to build David a house. This is a way of acknowledging their support of him and that they recognize the hand of the Lord was upon him. Verse 2 also says that notice David himself knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. So notice David, it says here, was aware himself, it says, that the reason that the Lord was doing the things that he was in his life, he was aware that the reason why all the good things were happening in his life were, was all because of the Lord. And David recognized that. It says David knew, he had a sense and awareness, you know what, the only reason why I have been exalted to this position, the only reason why things are happening the way they are, the only reason for the good things that are unfolding in my life uh, is the Lord. It's the Lord doing it. It has nothing to do with me or my talent or my worthiness or that somehow I earned this or achieved this opportunity. David was able to just kind of step back and say, you know what? The only reason for this is the Lord. It's the only reason. Uh, and I think, honestly, it is a good thing when a person's heart, whether you get the role of a king or whether the Lord is just giving you some opportunity or working through your life in some way or whatever good things are happening in your life that you always remember, like James says, every good and perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father. And again, whether it's some role that we are able to serve in or some opportunity that's set before us or some blessing or favor upon our life or some way that just things are happening in our life that are good and, and wonderful in any capacity that we would realize, you know what, there's one reason for this. It's the Lord. It's just totally the Lord. Uh, it's the grace of God and his favor and his kindness. And David understood this. He also knew as well, it says in verse 2, that he had been highly exalted to this role, not just for his own sake, that is for his own self-serving benefit. It says he had been exalted in this way as the king for the sake of his people Israel. And I like that. David also realized this favor upon my life, God's hand on my life, God's blessing on my life, the way God is working through my life. David understood this is not for my own self-interest. This is not just so I can gain more benefit or I can use this role in a self-serving way or I can use this opportunity in a self-serving way. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, if we don't realize it's the Lord, 
then we kind of tend to do the second thing wrong too, where we use the role or the opportunity or the blessing or the favor and we use it in a selfish way for ourselves and we start to take it and use it in a self-serving way. We use a position in a way to serve ourselves or we use some opportunity or you know a thing that comes before us in a way where we selfishly think somehow this is to make my life better and to somehow bless me more when the reality is David says, what I realize is the Lord has done what he's done through my life for the sake of his people. And, and this is such a wonderful heart. Again, the recognition of God's grace and favor brought the humility in David's heart for him to say, Lord, the reason you have exalted me is so I can help others. It's so I can serve others and bless others and benefit others. And boy, those two just make a wonderful match when you can realize it, this is just the Lord and it's the Lord so that I can serve people. And so that I can bless others and help others, that's why the Lord has given this opportunity. And David recognized this as he was being exalted and being blessed there upon the throne of Israel now. Now, as we've talked about before, David was far from a perfect man. And verse 3 uh, down through verse 7 give us a little bit of a reminder of that. It says, then this time David took more wives in Jerusalem. And David begot more sons and daughters, and these are the names of the children whom he had in Jerusalem, Shamua and Shobab, and Nathan, and Solomon, and Ibhar, and Elishua, and Elpalet, and Nogah, and Nepheg, and Japhia, and Elishima, and Biliada, and Ilaphalet. Now, if you're looking for a few names for kids, there you go. If you're a grandparent, encourage your children not to do that to you because there's no way you're going to get those pronunciations out. And again, David at this time, understand, and again, I, I want to keep context here in the sake of what's being recorded. Chapter 14 is really given by the writer of Chronicles to show the exaltation of David. And you have to understand, and, and please hear me out in this, in some ways, what David is doing here as a king in Jerusalem is cultural norm. Uh, typically, the way a king would indicate their power, their authority, uh, the magnanimous ability they had or their resources was to take to themselves more and more wives and produce more and more children because every wife you took and every child you produced was more that you could provide for, more than you could take care of. Many a times, the wives would have their own houses built. We're going to read when we get over to chapter 15, David built houses plural for himself and many of those houses weren't just so he could go from house to house like a a vacation house here a vacation house there the way we would think a lot of times this was because he would have this house over here for this wife and those children this house over here for this wife and those children and and many of this was cultural norm a lot of times marriages happened even because of just political alliances so, for example, you would marry a, a princess from another you know, foreign territory, and this in some ways would establish a level of peace because you wouldn't attack a territory if your daughter was married to the king there because you don't want to risk your daughter's welfare. So a lot of times there were political reasons and not just the natural reasons we think of for people getting married. But uh, be that as it may, either way, Deuteronomy 17 clearly stated that God said that kings were not to multiply wives to themselves nor were they to multiply gold and silver nor horses and reliance upon armies and things of, of military power rather than relying upon the lord uh, again what god said is look i know the way culture does stuff but i do things differently 
And just because kings are successful in culture because that's the way they operate in the world doesn't mean you have to operate that way to be successful. And so David here, irregardless of what culture was doing, and yes, this is kind of trying to show the prominence of David. This is kind of the, the general concept here. Nonetheless, we know according to the, to the Old Testament law that God gave that David is still in violation to the word of God, and that's more important. It's more important to be in cooperation with the word of God and not in cooperation with how the culture does things by its norm and its design. And God would have blessed and established David and made him successful whether he had one wife or whether he had seven wives. That had nothing to do with that or whether he had one descendant or whether he had a hundred descendants. So here really the weakness of David's flesh in some ways is being revealed and, and his own struggles with perhaps you know the pride of wanting to seem powerful and maybe his passions for women in some ways not being regulated the way that they should have been in self-control. And so David here took more wives to himself, violated the word of God in this area specifically. And really, this becomes the premise for a lot of David's problems. When you look at David's life as a character study, a lot of the problems that came into David's personal life are all traced to the fact that he took multiple wives to himself and had multiple children through them, and it created much of the drama and family dysfunction for David. Had he just obeyed God's word, he could have in some ways uh, avoided a lot of the personal problems. Always much better to just listen to God's word, do it God's way. Well, verse 8 tells us, Now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed, notice, king over all Israel. Now the Philistines were the perennial enemies of Israel. Constant conflict, they were regular enemies who routinely attacked the people of Israel, tried to control them and subdue them and rip them off and take their crops and so forth, stopping them in any way they could from prospering. It says, when the Philistines heard David became king, notice, over all Israel. At this point, when they heard that, they went up to search for David. The implication there seems to be when David was just king in Judah... And the nation was somewhat still divided and the other 10 nations up in the north were doing those things and, and there was kind of this kind of state of civil war still. They kind of thought, well, he's just kind of a tribal king. He's nothing of a real threat. But when the full plan of God came together and ultimately things came in alignment with the will of the Lord and the time had come and David ascended to the throne and ruled over all the people the way he was rightfully supposed to, it's at that point it triggers the enemy to become angry. And at that point, the enemy says, you know what, wait, this is getting too serious and going too well and going too far. And so now all of a sudden, the Philistines, the enemies of, of God's people come and they begin to search for David and they're ready to begin to launch an attack. And, you know, as we look at this here, again, many of these things are very beautiful pictures that remind us of exactly what happens in the spiritual realm for our lives. You know, when we enthrone one greater than David, Jesus, and and you might say when we enthrone Jesus over all of our life, the enemy's not going to be happy about that. And that's when he's going to come pursuing and attacking and, and, and ramping up his efforts to bring assaults and attack and confront in those situations. You know, honestly, if as a believer, we go, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take King Jesus over about 20% of my life, but the other 10 tribes inside of my life, the other 80% of my life, I mean, 20% of my life, yeah, that's, that, that's cool. Jesus can kind of rule over this and that, but I mean, I don't want to go, the end of, great, be a compromised Christian. 
Be a carnal Christian. You'll be a horrible witness and you won't be affected for the king anyway. Just live that way. But if all of a sudden a believer comes to a place where you or I say, you know what? No, I want Jesus to rule over all. I want Jesus to rule over every part of my life, over everything that's about me and who I am. I want Jesus's rulership over all of me. You know what? I tell you something. At that moment, you're going to instigate the enemy. At that moment, the enemy's going to want to resist that. And we can't be naive. That's when the enemy is going to attack and assault. You don't think he's going to give you a standing ovation for that. It's a oh, appraisal. That's bold. Hey, of course not. That's when he's going to begin to bring pressure. And so we have to realize that when we take these kind of steps of commitment and devotion towards the Lord, these are the times that are going to provoke spiritual opposition and resistance and we need to realize it for what it is and be ready to embrace it and so it says david heard about their pursuit of him and he went out against them and then the philistines went and they made a raid on the valley of rephaim and david verse 10 inquired of god saying shall i go up against the philistines will you deliver them into my hand and the lord said to him go up for i will deliver them into your hand. So David wisely, sensing what's going on, aware the enemy is in pursuit of him, realize he's facing a conflict in a tough circumstance, he doesn't initially just say, you know what, rally that military that we assembled. Now, David could have done that. He had quite a military by this point. We saw that in the prior chapters. He's got quite an extensive military that he's rallied around himself at this point and some really tough and talented warriors who were pretty effective in warfare. But David doesn't lean on the arm of flesh. He doesn't just assume, hey, I can take this. We can handle this. We are ready for this. David instead, what does he do? He pauses and it says he inquires of God. He prays. And he says, I see what's happening. I, I sense the threat. I can tell what's going on. And, and, and it seems like there's going to be a battle. It seems like I'm going to need to engage in this situation. And he may not have wanted, but it seems like, Lord, from what I'm seeing here, it seems like I'm going to have to engage and face this situation that's tough. But he says, but before I do that, Lord, am I supposed to do that? Lord, shall I go up and fight them? In other words, Lord, do you want me to, to enter into this? Do you want me to do this? And in essence, he's asking the Lord, Lord, is this something you want me to do rather than just assuming that it looks like the right thing to do? And that's tough because circumstantially, David's a warrior. He's an incredibly talented fighter himself. He's an awesome military general. He's now king over a nation. And when the Philistines line up in battle array against you, them's are fighting words, right? So in his mind, he's thinking, this isn't hard. That means time to fight. That means that I should go out and, and, and engage in battle. But David says, you know what? Just because it looks so obvious, I don't want to just assume that I'm supposed to do this. Lord, keep me from assuming and just thinking it looks right. Lord, is it what you want me to do? Do you will for me to do this? And very wise of us to do the same thing, to ask the Lord if he actually wants us to do something and not just assume we should do something because it just seems so obvious in the circumstances or the way a situation looks. So he's saying, Lord, and if I do this, Lord, I want to know, are you going to deliver them into my hand? 
That's humility. Lord, I don't want to just assume that I could defeat them either. No matter how talented we are, how great our resources are, Lord, if you don't give us victory, we're going to fail. And David understood this. And so David says, Lord, if you want me to do this, then I'm trusting. And are you going to give me victory? And notice what the Lord says to him. The Lord says, David, go up and I will deliver them into your hand. He has the direction of God to go forward. And he has the promise of God that he's going to succeed. He says, David, the answer is yes. Go. I do want you to go. I do want you to step into this. This is what I want you to do. So there's the agreement on that. And he says, and David, you also have my promise. You're going to succeed. And that makes all the difference in the world. When you have the direction of God that he wants you to do something and you have the assurance of God that he's going to give you victory, you can step into something in faith and humble confidence and know that the Lord's going to win the battle for you. That was one thing David had learned. Remember 1 Samuel 17? We're going to look at this Saturday, actually, in our men's breakfast together when we get there for our devotion, where David faced Goliath. And what did David know? David knew one thing. He says, you come against me with sword and, 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 and shield and javelin. He says, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And he says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand because the battle is the Lord's. And see, when you know that, it makes all the difference in the world. You can be incredibly outmatched, but if the Lord's leading you to do it and the Lord's assuring you that he's going to make it work out and give you success, you can step into it. So verse 11 says, they went up from Baal Perazim and David, notice, defeated them. He had victory. And then David said, very wisely, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a breakthrough of water. You see the cooperative description there? God has broken through by my hand. What's David's? David's saying, I did have to do something. I did have to cooperate. I did have to participate. God uses human participation. When God leads us to do something, we still need to step into it. We still need to go through the practical steps and participate. He says, I engaged in battle, but God brought the victory. I stepped into the situation and did what needed to be done practically, but he says, but it was God who brought the victory and helped me to win and to succeed in the situation. And always this cooperative effort of the participation of man, but yet the power of God and his being the one that brings the victory. So he says, God has broken through my enemies like a, a breakthrough of water, like water just overcoming uh, like a, you know, a, a dammed up area that was trying to hold the water back, just breaking through by its power of its current. Therefore, he says, he called the name of that place Baal Perazim, which literally is a term that means master of the breakthroughs or Lord of the breakthroughs. And I like that. I think, man, what a great description David gives to this situation. He names this place after what happened, and that's this. He says, the Lord brought a breakthrough. The Lord is the master of bringing breakthroughs. And boy, isn't that a, a good thing to know about our God? That when the Lord tells you to do something, the Lord directs me to do something and gives us his assurance that he is in it, that we can step into it in faith and we can trust no matter how it looks or how great of a wall is built up to try and restrain back that water, that the Lord can break through any barrier. 
that he's the master of breakthroughs. And, and that's encouraging because sometimes we look at a situation, we go, just you don't understand. I mean, the walls that person's got up, the, the walls they got up. Look, God's the master of breakthroughs. He'll find a crack eventually. It may take him a little while, but he's the master of breakthroughs. He's the Lord of breakthroughs and he has the power to break through anything. And what a wonderful thing to be encouraged by that we can rest in that, do our part and know that this is the God that we serve. And David experienced this so many times and I think it's so beautiful that he gives this area, this description as the result of what God did in like manner. It says, verse 12, and then when they left their gods there, that is the Philistines left their gods behind. It's always bad when you got to carry your gods in the battle, isn't it? And that's what happened to me. They, they, they ran for the hills and they left their gods behind. You know, I don't need a God that I have to carry. I'd rather my God carry me. But yeah, that's how you know you got the wrong God. If you have to carry it, drive it, you get the idea. Th- then you know you got the wrong God. And David gave a commandment and they were burned with fire. So according to Deuteronomy 7, David knew, look, any altars, any idols, any old statues left behind, God told the people, eradicate them, burn them, get rid of them. Because God said, if you don't remove those things, your sinful inclination will fall prey to the temptation to then indulge those things. And so sometimes there's just real practical wisdom in kind of burning the bridges of opportunities. And that's what David does here. God had told them if they leave their gods behind, he told them just burn them in the fire, get rid of them. And David wisely does this. He doesn't say, oh, we'll just, we'll be okay. We'll just set them aside. He says, no, no, let's just burn them so nobody falls prey to that stuff. Let's just get rid of it and remove it so we can't even participate in the evil things that they were once doing as the Philistines. Verse 13, then the Philistines, I have this underlined, once again made a raid on the valley. Notice, once again. You're thinking, oh, well, we defeated them. Great, done, over with. The enemy always regroups. And once again, the Philistines went back and they regrouped and they decide, hey, we are going to come back a second time. And again, that's exactly what the enemy of our soul does as well. We may defeat the enemy in some situation. We may have victory over one of his assaults against our life spiritually and the Lord gives us the breakthrough and we overcome but we always must remain on guard because our enemy is persistent and he may lose the battle, but he's just going to regroup and, and try and look for another better opportunity for ambush. And once again, he's going to come back. Don't think if you defeated the enemy one time that, hey, you're fine and you're going to sail your way into heaven. You need to always be prepared. I need to always be sober and vigilant and alert. We have a, an enemy that's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he'll come back again and again and continue to look for opportunities. So the enemy returns now a second time to make another raid. And verse 14, therefore David inquired again. I have those two phrases online. The enemy came back once again and David inquired again. Yeah, is David prayed again. David prayed again saying to God, asking him, you shall, and God said to him, you shall not go up after them, but circle around them and come upon them in front of the mulberry bushes. And it shall be when you hear a sound of marching in the top of the mulberry trees, then you shall go out to battle for God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. So take notice what happens there. 
They come back a second time and David doesn't presume that what worked last time will just work again this time. And that's another common mistake we can make. We think, hey, well, last time that situation arose or last time in that scenario, this is what I did and it worked. Or this is how we handled it. This was the strategy or this was the method we used to overcome or be successful. And so we become attached to the strategy. Or we become enamored with the, 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 the way or the approach we took and then we make a formula out of it. I mean, let's be very candid. Is it not true that many Christian books are built on formulas? It's somebody experiences the Lord's help, the Lord's victory in some area or something, or has some fruitfulness or success in ministry or able to overcome something. And instead of writing a book about the greatness of God and his power and his grace and how his, what does the book become reduced to? The book a lot of times becomes reduced to really the formula right, that they used that made them ultimately achieve this great victory or this success or whatever. And if you just employ these same five steps or, or work this same method, then you can be blessed too. You can have victory as well, or you can succeed and prosper in business or do well in ministry. And, and, and we formulize everything. And here David shows that's not good to do. David paused and he didn't presume that what God did last time, God was going to do the things the same way this time. He realized God may want to work different this time. And the reality was God did. He was right. It's a good thing he prayed because this time God said, David, don't go up like you did last time. Instead, we're going to take a rear approach. I want you to go and wait until you see the shaking of the mulberry trees. And then once that happens, then jump out and ambush, and that's the way I'm going to give you victory this time. And God was teaching David, David, I don't lead by formulas. I lead through prayer and by you following me in a personal way. I don't want you to lean on some formula or trust some methodology, whatever it may be. David, I want you to follow me personally. Don't follow a formula, follow me. This is so important for us in our lives because the way the Lord worked last time may not be the way he's going to work this time. Or the way the Lord worked in some situation, we're like, oh, yeah, I mean, remember what happened last year, two years ago? Or remember, and, and wow, we, that's what we got to do. We just got to do that. And if we do that, God may go, yeah, you'll do that and I'll do nothing. Right? <laughs> because it's you doing that and you think it's in the formula. And so, so important that we stay in step with the Lord and we realize the way that we are to be led is not by a formula or a method, whether it's in our personal situations or ministry that we do or whatever, but that we're, we're not led by a formula, but by following the Lord, by praying, letting God direct us and letting God show us. And sometimes God works in new ways. And the approach he takes may be different. He may want to work in a fresh way, a unique way, because then what do we have to say afterwards? That was the Lord again. Because <laughs> it wasn't just I went straight up in a frontal assault. This time God told me to go in a backdoor approach and he, God said, wait till I shake the trees. And then when I shake the trees, I'm ready to move. And, and so David did that. And look what it says. When David did that, verse 16, David did as God commanded him. And they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. So David does what the Lord tells him to do without presuming upon his old ideas. 
And God blesses it because he's following the Lord, because he's taking direction currently from what the Lord wanted to do. He's remaining dependent upon the Lord and not just doing some routine process. That's what the Lord wants, that we'd stay relational with him, letting him lead in each situation. I love what it says. David did as God commanded, and then they were able to drive back the army. God gave him success because he did what God told him to do. Let me encourage you, whenever you face a situation, always force yourself, stop, step back, and ask yourself this question. What is God telling me to do in this situation? Not what have others told me to do because of how they did it in that situation. Not what is my memory telling me to do because one time before, kind of in a similar situation, stop and ask yourself, what is God telling you to do in this situation? In this particular situation, what is God himself telling you to do? Because if you do that and do what God commands, you're going to be in step with what God wants to accomplish and you'll experience the fruitfulness and victory that God wants to give to you. Verse 17 says, Then the fame of David went throughout all the lands and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. And David built houses, chapter 15, for himself in the city of David. And he prepared, notice, a place... For the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. So David here, in the midst of doing some of his activities, construction processes again, all the while the ark of the Lord is still upon his heart. Now it's only been about a three-month gap between when David had his first unsuccessful attempt to try and bring the ark up and this point here. And now about a three-month span has gone by, and David now preparing a place for the ark of God, pitching a tent for it, because his heart is still to do this, to still bring the ark, which is where God's presence, not where God's presence dwelt permanently, but where God would manifest his presence to the people. Uh, There wasn't, again, something superstitious or special about the ark. That was just the place there on the mercy seat where God would manifest his presence and manifest his glory. And David understood this. So he wants to bring the ark, therefore, to the center of the lives of the people so that God will manifest his presence and God will show his glory among them. So I like this as he prepares a place for the ark of God. I look at that and I think, what a beautiful picture there, David, preparing for the presence of God, preparing a place for God's presence, preparing for the glory of God's uh, you know, fame to come in the midst of the people. And, and God help us, whatever that may look like in our lives personally, that we would be open to, Lord, what can I do to prepare a place for your presence in my life? to allow your presence to be able to be welcomed and free to move in my midst. Lord, how can I prepare a place? How can I prepare my home to be a presence where, uh, I mean, a, a location where your glory and your presence dwells? Lord, how can I prepare you know, the, the gathering of your people? How can we come together and prepare a place where you would say, I want to be a part of that church? I want my presence to move powerfully there and I want to manifest my glory. And David here prepares a place for the ark and then verse two, he then said after doing this, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. That was the mistake the first time. For the Lord has chosen them 
to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. So David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark to its place, which he had prepared for it. So during this three-month span, and again, 2 Samuel fills in the details there in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel of this, what David does is he spends a few months after the first unsuccessful attempt that results in failure and heartache and loss and problems. David spends a good few months basically as the result of his error seeking the Lord and searching God's word. Because as he's seeking the Lord and searching God's word, he then comes to the conclusion, he's going to say later in the chapter, that he realized the first time our mistake was we didn't consult God and we didn't do it according to the order of what God's word says. And so David says here, nobody can carry the ark but the Levites. We shouldn't put it on a cart and push it. And we shouldn't just let anybody carry. He says it must be the chosen people of the Levites who God has prescribed and ordained by his decision because those are God's terms and the terms God laid out. So David understood if we're going to do things, we need to do them on God's terms, not on our terms. That's where we always get in trouble as people. We want to offer God our terms and ask God to bless it. And God says, no, that's not how it works. These are my terms. Your job is to accept those things and comply and submit to them. And that's what I'll bless. And so David here, understanding Numbers chapter 4, that only the Levites were to stick poles through those rings on the ark and to carry the ark of God, not to put it on a cart and push it. And again, as we talked about last time, that's because they were to carry the ark, which represented God's presence, because symbolically it foreshadowed what God always wanted to do. And that's this, is that God's people would carry his presence. The presence of God on this earth now is carried by God's people. As the presence of the Lord dwells within me and dwells within you, we carry the presence of the Lord everywhere we go. His presence isn't just stuck here in the church. We didn't turn off the lights on Sunday after Easter and say, okay, Jesus, we'll, we'll see you Wednesday night. His presence doesn't just hang out here. His presence went with all the people of God because his presence dwells within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we carry the presence of the Lord. So they were to reverently carry the ark because of that. So David brings everyone together and assembled, it says, verse four, the children of Aaron and the Levites of the sons of Kohath Uriel the chief and 120 of his brethren, the sons of Merai and Azaiah the chief and 220 of his brethren, and the sons of Gershom and Joel the chief and 130 of his brethren. So we're getting lists here, again, more of these, uh, you know, chronicling of the different lists, the lineage of those who did these things. He calls together all the different individuals from Levi to participate in these things. Verse 11 says, And David called for Zadok and Abiathar, then the priests, and for the Levites, for again, he references Uriel and Azaiah and Joel and Shemaiah and Eliel and Aminadab. And he said to them, you are the heads of the Levites. You're the leaders amongst these people, he says. So therefore, as leaders, sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So David giving instruction to them, 
brings them together and then he says to them, verse 12, look, you are the ones that need to do this. God wants to do this work through you. But he says, before God does this work through you, he says, it's important, verse 12, that you sanctify yourselves. And the idea there is to set yourself apart, prepare yourself. That's the word sanctify means. It means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be prepared, to be cleansed, to be ready for usefulness. They would sanctify furnishings before they'd use them in the temple. And so again, this reminder, look, it's important that you be set apart to be ready for God to use you. And I think whenever God works through our lives, the Bible tells us in the New Testament now in 2 Corinthians, we are all sufficient ministers of the new covenant. And, and for God to work through us as God worked through the Levites, he will do just the same by his spirit dwelling within us now. But it's important that we sanctify ourselves to be ready for God's useful purposes. Paul, writing to Timothy, uh, tells him to do that very thing. He tells him to, to prepare himself that he might be a vessel of honor fit for the master's use. And so important that we at times, you know, set apart our lives, that we cleanse from our lives anything that would inhibit us from being useful for God's purposes, that we want to be ready and available for God's work to happen through our lives to serve him. And he says, verse 13, the problem we made the first time, he says, was we caused God to break out against us in judgment because we didn't pray or consult him and we didn't consider the proper order that is God's way of doing things. And again, that's very important. When we do things, as we said last time, it's not just doing things as far as, hey, well, if we do the right thing, it doesn't matter how we go about it in the way. You know, too often we can make that mistake and that comes from a mentality of the world that the end justifies the means. And so in the world's mindset, as long as there's a, you know, a, a, a good end, as long as you have a good intention in the end, you know, the means to get there, I mean, you know, that you can kind of juggle a little bit. I mean, yeah, maybe if you got to cut a corner or rip somebody off or, you know, not hold to integrity or not be honest. I mean, if in the end you got a good, I mean, the end justifies the means. As long as in the end you do the right thing, I mean, the means to get there, look, you know, we got to do what we got to do. That's not how God wants us to operate. In God's heart, he doesn't want us just to do the right thing. He wants us to go about it the right way. I'll show you one way we blow that a lot of times as Christians. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. Christians love to just speak the truth. And we think, hey, the end justifies the means. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to blow your face off. I love you, brother. Have a good day. And God says, you're a jerk. You're selfish. You spoke the truth, but it was completely unloving. It was like a fire hydrant. You opened and blasted into your wife's face or blasted into your husband's face or some brother or sister. And, and, it, and it, all it did was, like 1 Corinthians 13 says, you can speak in the tongues of men and angels. But if you don't have love, you're like a clanging cymbal. It profits nothing. In other words, what God says is you can say all the right things in the most poetic, eloquent, perfect way. And if there's not love stemming from your heart for the reason you're saying it or in the way you're saying it, it's just about as effective, God says, as like taking those big clash symbols that the bands have and walking up and taking somebody's head and going, and the same response they would have, right? Just, just totally offended and damaged and wounded. And so again, so important. They, they did the right thing, 
But God says, you went about it the wrong way. And in all the things that we do in our life, seeking to, you know, experience God's best and God's presence and God's blessing, let's always remember, we need to do things according to the order of the Word of God. All of the Word of God. That we would seek to remain balanced and in context with what Scripture says. And when we make our plans, we consult the Lord, but we would also consult the book. And we would consult God's Word and see how God's Word says is the way to go about that. How does God tell us to do that? What's the right way, the right approach? And that we would keep those things in mind so God will bless what we do. And that's ultimately what we want rather than it fail as their first attempt did. And, and people got hurt. Someone's life was lost. There was great disappointment. And David here, in a repentant manner, he understands. He's acknowledging as the king of the whole nation of people that, that this is the mistake that happened. So verse 14 says, So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. And then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals by raising the voice with resounding joy. He's now implementing here different worship ministers, those who would lead the singing and the music, the celebration, again, that worship would be offered up to God in the midst of this. I think it's interesting, verse 16, it says that he appointed the singers and the singers were then accompanied by the instruments of music. Isn't that interesting? God says, it's not about the music being really great and then whatever happens with the singing. God says, no, it's about the singing the, the Bible repeatedly, in the next chapter, it's gonna, God's going to repeatedly say, sing, sing, sing to the Lord. What God cares about is the voice, because the voice reflects the heart and carries forth what's in the heart. Listen, the, the music should be good. The music should accompany. The music helps, right? Keeps us on tempo. We know that. We just sang a cappella tonight. <laughs> but what God cares about, ultimately, is the the voice because we make melody with our heart unto the Lord as we sing. And here God says the primary thrust should be the singing accompanied by the music that assists and supports it. You know, I think that's important to keep in mind because sometimes in you know certain circles of Christianity today in our you know modern church era, it just seems like, man, we just got to have this incredible band and this fantastic music and just, again, and I have no problem with great music, but we're not putting on a concert. We're, we're worshiping the Lord. And, and if it sounds like a concert, I can't follow along and worship the Lord because I can't do that. And, and here it says that they were to have singers accompanied by the instruments to help to raise the voice with resounding joy, expressing the joy and the love towards the Lord. So the Levites appointed He-Man, the son of Joel, there he is again, and his brethren, Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and their brethren, the sons of Merari, and again, the list of those names I'm not going to torture you with. Verse 19, the singers, He-Man and Asaph and Ethan, were to sound the symbols of bronze. So again, using symbols to praise the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. Zechariah and Azael and more of those names of individuals, notice, with strings according to Alamoth. So using stringed instruments in worship is part of God's heart. Verse 22 
or verse 21, excuse me, there were those who were to direct with the harps. In verse 22, you had Chenaniah, the leader of the Levites, and he was instructor in charge of the music because he was skillful. Now that's insightful there as they're talking about the worship ministry of that day as the ark is brought back up and the people are celebrating and worshiping God and singing with music. It says the leader of the worship ministry, if you would, the instructor and leader, Chenaniah, was in charge of the music because he was skillful. That is, he had a skill in that area. He was talented. And again, that goes to show you again that, that God doesn't diminish the value of skill. There's nothing wrong with someone who is skillful in singing, skillful in music capability. I hope they are. If not, the rest of us are going, where are we going with this tempo? Where are we going with this song? So that skill is a God-ordained gift. It's a blessing. And I think that's important because we can make the mistake again. So many different ways we can fly to other extremes and get out of balance. Sometimes we almost, in you know, I, I, to me I would use the term hyper-spirituality, almost act that if somebody's skillful, they're not spiritual. Now, let me say this. You can have someone who's a very skilled musician and singer that is not spiritual. I feel like I've known a few individuals who were very gifted musicians, wonderful singers, but I didn't really sense the spiritual anointing of a worship leader upon their life. They could lead a song. They could play and sing a song, but they didn't seem to be a very spiritual individual and it seemed the anointing of the Spirit was upon them. But that being said, in the same way being skillful without being spiritual is not good for leading worship of God's people, in the same way, let us not think in a wrong way that a person being skillful means they can't be spiritual. And that somehow it's, you know, that's not spiritual if you're that good. I mean, it's just, that, that, that's just not spiritual. No, that skill comes from the Lord. And here David said, hey, find us someone skillful. That's who should be the worship leader. Someone who, again, certainly knows and loves the Lord, a minister of the Lord, but he was skillful and that was important. Verse 23 mentions those who were the doorkeepers of the ark. Verse 24 describes some of those who were priests who were to blow the trumpets before the ark of God and Obed-Edom and Jediah, the doorkeepers of the ark. Again, those are like the Old Testament ushers as we talked about. Verse 25, so David and the elders of Israel and the captains of her thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. Remember when they came up, 2 Samuel tells us there in chapter 6, this time every six paces they were stopping and sacrificing animals. Now, to travel like that with a big group of people and carrying an ark, that's not real efficient. Six steps, stop, build an altar, blood sacrifice, be reverent before God, make sure God is pleased with us. That's not real efficient. But they were so concerned about making sure God was pleased, their primary focus wasn't efficiency it was reverence it was God we want to be right with you this may not be the most efficient way this may not be the most you know you know productive way but Lord if it's the most effective way spiritually 
That's what we want to do. And look, sometimes in our lives, God's ways, folks, they may not be the most efficient. God's path to your spiritual maturity, to my spiritual growth, to my worship, it may not be the most efficient (laughs) from our perspective humanly, but if it's the most effective, slow down, humble yourself before the Lord, stay reverent before God, and, and let God work in those ways whereby his perfect plan may come to pass. So here they're just every few paces offering seven bulls and seven rams. And David, it says, was clothed with a robe of linen, as were the Levites who bore the ark and the singers, and Chenaniah, the music master with the singers. And David also wore a linen ephod. Again, he wasn't, this idea here is, he wasn't wearing his kingly robe. He was wearing just the, the linen ephod of like a commoner, of a servant. And thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn and trumpets and cymbals, making music with stringed instruments and harps. So this is just, again, a grand celebration of worship. Just beautiful. Imagine a parade of worship. I mean, can you imagine that in today's culture? This is literally a, a national parade of just worshiping the Lord and music and praise being lifted up. And the ruler of the nation is the one leading it here. This is David. And it happened, verse 29, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David up into the capital, that Michael, remember that was David's first wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw the king, David, whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. So she sees David, her husband, who is the king of Israel. And he's the one out front. Second Samuel says that David is worshiping. And again, it's in the, and he's leaping and he's dancing and he's praising God. I mean, he is just unrestrained with passion, just giving worship to the Lord in public. He doesn't have an ounce of care of what people think about him, what he looks like, what he sounds like. All he cares about is I just want to praise God and give him the worship he's worthy of. David, who loved the Lord so greatly, And his wife looks upon this and he doesn't have on his kingly robe and he's not sitting there in this dignified manner in his chariot. And he's just expressing himself in humility and passion towards the Lord. And she looks at King David, her husband, and it says she despised him. It doesn't just say she didn't agree with him. It doesn't just say that she was like, well, I mean... If you want to do that, David, no, all right for you, but I'm just not there yet. It literally says she despised him. She hated that he was doing that. What what was the deal with that? Think of it. Really, what her concern was, David, you're a king. What are you doing? You have an image to maintain. Why, Why would you lower yourself like that? Why would you humiliate yourself like that? Why would you degrade yourself and and act like a commoner? What are you doing? You're acting like all the other people. David, you're a king. Let people know you're a king. Make sure people look up. David, make sure that you keep your status, right? But see, Michael's a picture of what the flesh is like. That's what the flesh, who we're attached to and we can't get rid of, just like a spouse, and I don't mean that in the wrong way, That's what our flesh whispers to us when we want to just, in an unrestrained way, just worship the Lord. Our flesh disdains it. Our flesh despises it. And say, what are you doing? Singing like that. 
you're a man. That's weird. What are you doing? It's not macho. Fold your arms. Mumble the words at least. But don't act like you're enjoying it. Lifting your hands. Oy vey. What are you doing? Lifting your hands. And our flesh despises and hates the worship that our heart and our spirit wants to give to the Lord. Hey, can I encourage you in relation to that? You know what? Crucify your flesh. At that point, it says that Michael was barren the rest of her life. And I'll tell you probably why she was barren. I don't think it was that God necessarily cursed her for what she did. I think it was because that drives such a wedge between her and David that David said, you know what? Go live over there. And he probably never visited her anymore and, and, and probably didn't have intimate relationships with her anymore. And he, and he created a level of separation. And you know what? Honestly, that, that's, we need to continue to grow in separation from our fleshly inhibitions. When it's time to worship the Lord, you know what? Cast off restraint and worship the Lord. Who cares what people think? Who cares how you look? Who cares the image? You know what? Is that really... What cares? What should we care about is what the Lord cares about. Honoring Him. Not being ashamed and loving and adoring Him. Let's stand together. Let's pray.